Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Stone Patrol Jesus 911 two man car. I'm waiting for my friend Paul Clay to, uh, to long on and jump right on in. Lot to talk about today. Remember, today is uh, today's the solemnity of the, the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you can get the Holy Mass, that would be fantastic. I'm reporting for duty. I just came back from the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And by the way, the month of August, we honor and devote ourselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. This devotion has received new emphasis in the century from the visions of Sister Lucy dos Santos. She is the oldest of the vision, visionaries of Fatima. And she received these visions from her convent in the city of Tui, Spain, in 1925 and 26. In these visions, Our Lady asked for the practice of the five first Saturdays to help make amends for the offenses committed against her heart and by the blasphemies and the ingratitude of men. This practice, by the way, parallels the devotion of the nine first Fridays in the honor of the sacred heart of Jesus. Well, as I said today... Uh, is uh, Monday. Today's the Solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and we ask her to pray for us. Let's uh, get right into it, and when Paul comes in, he'll just come in, and uh, we'll just pick it up uh, when he when he gets on, when he logs in. Something that concerns me in our country is you have a lot of young people, Gen Zs, that are essentially saying they're really having a hard time going to work. But I'll tell you something that concerns... I'll tell you what concerns me even more is George Soros and what he's doing to our country. Victims are blaming George Soros because he's backing up prosecutors for the deadliest crimes in the U.S in many U.S. cities, crime victims are pushing back against the cadre of prosecutors ushered into office with the help of billionaire activist and evil man George Soros as criminals are believed to have free reign to terrorize major cities. That's what we've been seeing the last two years. The latest voice in this chorus is Terry O'Connor, whose Philadelphia police officer husband was shot to death in 2020 while serving a search warrant James O'Connor would still be alive, Officer James O'Connor, but if not for the policies of District Attorney Larry Krasner, who allows criminals back on the street without jail time. Again, Krasner is a Soros-funded prosecutor. And uh, this uh, Terry, uh, the, the deceased wife, James O'Connor's wife, Terry O'Connor, she told Fox News that this criminal had lengthy criminal records for guns, shootings, murders. I could go on and on, Terry said. They were out of jail repeatedly because of our district attorney and his lenient policies. If those males were locked up and kept there where they're supposed to be, my husband would still be here today. Well, this story is almost identical to one involving Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon, another Soros-funded prosecutor who downgraded a felony a felony gun charge against a gang member last year 
The defendant, Justin Flores, went on to gun down two police officers responding to a call in a motel on June 14th. Backup officers shot Flores to death in the parking lot. And the county, the county sheriff, a former district attorney and a bipartisan group of victims, blasted Gascon over the episode, given that Flores would still be in jail if the gun charge was not downgraded per Gascon's policy against weapons charges. The DA Gascon from L.A., his policies have grave consequences, said Sheriff Alex Villanueva. He told the Washington Examiner. Sheriff Villanueva said, ultimately, or unfortunately, it's the innocent persons who pay the price. In this case, two cops are just who are just doing their jobs. So both DA Krasner and DA Gascon belong to an elite club. These are prosecutors elected within the, fa- the last five years, receiving direct or indirect direct donations from George Soros, while their cities are ravaged by crime. The PACs that are set up by Soros gave Krasner and Gascon $1.3 million and $4.7 million respectively for campaigns that promised to reform the criminal justice system. What he's trying to do is deform the criminal justice system. And other freshman Soros beneficiaries include Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, Kim Fox of Cook County, Illinois, Buddha Bibberaj of Loudoun County, Virginia. Uh, yeah, these people have received uh, you know over a million dollars apiece, these prosecutors. In addition, Soros-funded PACs helped bankroll the campaign of San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Bowden, who was recalled last month after a high-profile campaign organized by victims and former prosecutors. Chesa Bowden received 620000 from several Soros PACs that have a heavy Soros presence, including Tides, the Washington Times reported. Terry O'Connor, the widow of the deceased uh, officer, she said, it's not working. Who thinks that this system of giving people second, third, fourth chances is working? Our city's not safe. It hasn't been safe for quite some time. There are younger victims being shot and killed every day. It's because they're let out again and again. And every time it happens, you see their arrest records, O'Connor said, the, the widow. She says, it's disgusting how many priors they have. Nothing's done about it. They are not kept behind bars where they deserve to be. Close quote. So the policies are in line with the reforms put forth by George Soros, who defended his actions in a recent Wall Street Journal um, op-ed. He said, quote, George Soros wrote this. He said, quote, we need to invest more in preventing crime with strategies that work, deploying mental health professionals in crisis situations, investing in youth programs and creating opportunities for education behind bars. This reduces the likelihood that those prisoners will commit new crimes after release. Yeah, right. Frequent Soros critic Ted Cotton, he's a Republican from uh, Arkansas, he was not convinced. Ted Cotton told the New York Post the following. He said this, Everywhere Soros-backed prosecutors go, crime follows. These legal arsonists have abandoned their duty to public safety by pursuing lenient leniency even for the most heinous crime, and they often flat-out refuse to charge criminals for shoplifting, vagrancy, and entire categories of misdemeanors. Uh, all I could say is, yeah, all I could say is, uh, Lord, <laughs> uh, help us, Lord, make haste to come to our assistance. Paul, what do you think of George Soros and his uh, his prosecutors that he's funding? Is he's uh, he's really installing all over the country with his with his packs. 
Paul, can you hear me? Okay, I see him, but I can't, uh, I don't hear him. Yeah, San Francisco's new uh, anti-woke DA is reversing the lax drug case policies of his predecessor, Bowden, which is a good thing. That's a good thing to see. So some of you are probably saying, so who's this guy, George Soros? I'll tell you, George Soros is probably the most evil man in the world. And uh, he's probably the most influential non-politician on planet Earth, without a doubt. George Soros is a multi-billionaire atheist. He has, he has a deformed moral conscience. I would actually say he has a sociopath's lack of conscience. He considers himself to be an elitist, world-class philosopher. He despises the American way of life. He despises the contributions of Christianity to Western civilization. And George Soros just loves to do social engineering and change cultures with his money. Soros was born August 12, 1930 in Hungary. Uh, he was, uh, he was, he's, he's actually called the Schwartz family. They were non-practicing Jews, and they changed the family name to Soros in order to facilitate assimilation into the Gentile population in Hungary uh, back in the 1930s. In 1956, George Soros moved to New York, New York City, where he worked on Wall Street. And he started amassing his fortune. He specialized in hedge funds and currency speculation. Soros is absolutely ruthless. He admits that he's amoral. And he's clever in his business dealings and quickly made his fortune. By the 1980s, he was well on his way to becoming the global powerhouse that he is today. There's a website that used to be up that where they keep their eye on George Soros. It's called judas.watch forward slash George uh, space Soros. And so their mission at Judas Watch is to document anti-Western uh, traitors and agitators and, and subversives. And uh, George Soros is in the top of the food chain. So if you want to see the antics of George Soros, the, the dangerous uh, policies that he, he promotes with his money, go to judas.watch forward slash George uh, underscore Soros. And you can read all about those who have suffered due to the ruthless financial pursuits of George Soros. The stories are many and varied, but, but the S George Soros theme is the same. The destructive power of greed without conscience by this man. And uh, we need to tirelessly watch Soros wherever he goes and speak the truth in the hope that he will one day be made to stop preying upon the world's poor and ignorant and that justice will be served. Soros has been actively working to destroy America from, from the inside out for some years now. And he's doing it now through these district attorneys that he's funding. Many sources report that Soros, Soros is an extremist who wants open borders, uh, everybody to smoke pot, a one-world foreign policy, legalized drugs, a one-world government, euthanasia, and on and on. Again, this man and his policies are off the charts dangerous. Yeah, Soros is an atheist billionaire known for his self-loathing Jewish, Jewish status. He also funds a lot of anti-Catholic groups like Catholics and Alliance for the Common Good, Catholics United, Catholics for Choice. Uh, yeah, he's no friend of the Catholic Church. Up next, we're going to talk about the way more people are likely to move to states that reflect their political beliefs. We'll be right back. Now, back to Jesus 911.
If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Reporting for duty, sir. One-man car, maybe two-man cars. Paul Clay, are you on, my friend? Is Paul Clay on? Okay, just let me know when he comes on. Okay, I want to talk about the fact that a lot of people are moving to states that reflect their political beliefs. Both Democrats and Republicans are more likely to move to states that reflect their political views, indicating that self-segregation along ideological lines may increase parties' political advantages in former swing states over the coming years. More than a quarter of people in the United States, maybe about 30% actually, have considered moving out of state in the past six months, citing racial equality, lower taxes, LGBT protections, and the, and more as reasons for moving according to a new poll from Axios. Those considering a move are more likely to relocate to states where their preferred political parties are in power, the poll found. More than half of Democrats, 55%, said they would consider moving to a state that better reflects their political values, and just slightly below 58% of Republicans said the same, according to the poll. Okay, Mr. Paul, are you on, my friend? I'm calling in from the desk, Jess. Sounds good. <laughs> so you are, uh, yeah. you are reporting for duty. Hey, let me ask you yep. a question. A lot of people seem to be moving out of states into other states that reflect more their political beliefs. I did that seven years ago. You did that. You did that. How many years ago, Paul? Well, it was five years ago, but okay. um, I gotta tell you, um, I'm a little disappointed that uh, Nevada is. Uh, you know, when I moved here, it was considered a red state, and uh-huh. now they're telling me it's a blue state. We got uh, a mass evacuation of Californians coming into Southern Nevada. And I think that uh, they're affecting uh, the voting. Well, but not. But a lot of the Californians that move, are moving as they're they're conservative as well. So it's not it's it's a mixed bag, I guess. Well, I don't know. Then 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 I can't really explain it. It's just that uh, we have Governor uh, Sisolak, um, and he is uh, everything California does. He seems to parrot. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you personally why I moved out of California. So I mean, just, you know, just to put some meat on this article. The people to me that run California and New York, they just have no common sense at all. They're, they're Newsom and, uh, and the, the, the New York governor, they're control freaks. They have no common sense. Another thing about California and New York is they're just, they're bad places to do business right now. You're, you're finding a lot of businesses chain businesses like CVS, Walmart, they're closing because they're constantly getting robbed by mobs. Young black thugs go into a lot of these businesses uh, and just start ripping them off. And so they're closing all over California and New York. They can't do business there. Also, well, I would they come say, in all they come in all races, not just black. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it, what I've seen, because I watched the videos, most of them have been young black guys that I've seen. Yeah, I'm sure there's, you know, they, when you have a mask on, you don't know who they are. But uh, the fact of the matter is, it's a gigantic mess. 
Because the criminals know that they're not going to get prosecuted. Another reason I left California is I think the economy is a mess. Uh, you know, they pay the highest taxes in, in, in the country. I'm almost positive it's California pays the highest taxes in the country. Uh, that's another reason why I left. I think, in fact, yeah, in fact, I have read that California has the highest tax rates in the nation. And so just when you leave California, you put some, you put some uh, extra money in your pocket. Another thing, uh, two of the reasons that I left, Paul, is that poverty is exploding in California. You, I'm sure you've seen it before you left. And also mm-hmm. crime and gang violence is exploding in California. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I would say not only California, because uh, there's a saying they have in California, and I think you've probably heard it, uh, so goes California, so goes the nation. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, but for a long time, um, these negative trends that usually begin in California tend to migrate out to the rest of the country. And so we're seeing places in rural America that are just completely be- uh, beginning to be overrun by criminal activity and gangs. Another thing, Paul, that I've seen in California, you've probably seen the same thing. And it just it pains me because I was born and raised there. Uh, you, you're seeing that poverty and crime is transforming a lot of these once beautiful California cities into hell holes. It's yes. terrible places to raise your family, these once beautiful cities. Also, one of the reasons why I left seven years ago is my kids were starting to get married. I said, okay, they're going to get married. I don't think any of them have a vocation to the religious life. They're going to have children. Uh, I don't want them to go to the LA Unified School Districts. And a lot of the public, the, the private schools are not much better. A lot of them are woke in California. And so I said, I have to pull them out so they can follow me to a, to a better state. Because, again, California has some of the worst schools of the nation. I don't think anybody can argue with that. I mean, you know, these are schools that just uh, are woke on steroids. And uh, unless you're on top of your kids' education, they're feeding them Marxism right from kindergarten. Commons? Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody can argue with you there. And uh, I think that uh, over the years, I think justice can be linked back to the um the different worldview um that we have that conservatives have versus uh the liberals and the liberals have uh i i think conservatives for the most part have been asleep at the wheel mm-hmm. um and we haven't understood that um uh, uh you know i just saw a, a film and they had a drag queen uh, uh talking to little kids you know, explaining that, uh, you know, she says, well, I've, I've been, he says, I've been out of the closet since I was 21. And he's looking like a woman and they, what is out of the closet? And these little kids are asking questions. And this is, this is the kind of stuff that they're floating in the schools. And so uh, you said for a long time, sin makes you stupid. And, you know, for any people who can, who thinks that somehow this is educational, that exposing, uh, you know, small children to morally corrupt ideas. Now, and now, of course, you know, they'll accuse me of hate speech, right? Oh, mm-hmm. it's moral corruption. Well, you know what? Uh, I have a Judeo-Christian viewpoint. My, my viewpoint is a Catholic viewpoint of the world. And the last time I checked, um, uh, uh, homosexuality and uh, uh, 
uh, you know, ideas like God created, uh, you know, people LGBTQ, that, that's foreign to a Catholic Christian view. And so we have to call it like it is. And we have to understand that if we're going to go out and influence the world, um, we can't be afraid to speak the truth. Now, obviously, when you do speak the truth, sacred scripture tells us those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You see, the ideas of God, and that's a good barometer. That's a good barometer just to, to see, you know, you know, if you're faithful uh, you know, to Christ and to, you know, the precepts of Holy Scripture that, 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 that have been ingrained in us and taught in us, they're going to be, we're going to be uh, counterculture. We're going to be in a contradiction to the world, just as Christ was a contradiction to his world and a stone of stumbling. And so, uh, and they falsely accused him. We're going to experience all of that, but we have to understand that goes with the territory. You're absolutely right, Paul. And I'll tell you, here's what I see the big picture. When you look at a lot of these schools where they're teaching anything but reading, writing, and arithmetic, who's the one that's teaching this? Well, I'm going to quote somebody that, I, that died in 1965 that I probably don't agree with on many things, Malcolm X. You know, what he's, you know what he said 50 years ago? He said, the greatest, the greatest threat in America, he said, are white liberals. Guess what? Mm. I agree with him. Yeah. Absolutely. White liberals are the greatest threats in America. They run Hollywood. They run the National Education Association. They run basically, you know, all, all the Fortune 500 companies. And so white liberals, and they, they run the universities, academia. And so who are the guinea pigs? And I'll tell you, this is why there's more violence in, in, in black and Hispanic neighbors. I'll tell you why. Because since kids from kindergarten, their Judeo-Christian religion has been broken down, has been assaulted, and they turn them into little secular humanist Marxists, and they... These blacks and, and Hispanics grew up in the barrios and the ghettos, and they grew up where the basically might makes right mentality, a Darwinian evolution. They've rejected Christianity because it's, yeah. been, it's been destroyed through our public school system and our college. And so they grow up like little brain-dead Marxists, and they live by the Darwinian ethics, survival of the fittest, might makes right, only the strong survive. This is notice the blacks and Hispanics that, that commit crimes. They're liberals. They don't have a Christian world. They've rejected Christianity. They have a Marxist Darwinian worldview. And this was programmed into them by white liberals. Malcolm X was yep. spot on 50 years ago. Yeah. And, but I'll tell you another thing, um, you know, with Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, you know, that's the, uh, you know, the version of Islam that many uh, young blacks, blacks in race, America yeah. ascribe to, you know, the Nation of Islam essentially has uh, separated them and closed the door toward 
Christianity. You know, when they say things like you worship a white savior and they look at, you know, they'll pull a picture of uh, Jesus and he's white and they'll say that this is all brainwashing. This is, the, you know, these are your slave masters again, trying to show you that this is God, that they're God, you know, and they use this uh, distortion of the truth. And I said, you know, that's an image. If you want to have a, a black image of Jesus go right ahead because that you know you're missing the point if, if yeah. that's all you're seeing yeah and they but 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 they want to make everything about race and uh and and essentially somehow they've been told that Islam was their true religion uh well I hate to say this but most of them don't even realize that Christianity predates Islam by hundreds exactly. of years and that uh but but and that Islam uh was uh, exported around the world, and it was forced upon people, uh, you know, at, you know, under the threat of death. <laughs> That's right. But they don't, you know, a lot of people aren't students of history, and they don't realize that. And again, people have been, uh, you know, manipulated and brainwashed. Well, we're here to do the, uh, we're here on Jesus Nine Women to do the unbrainwashing, speaking the truth with love. Uh, we, we are here. We're, we're just here to just fire missiles of truth at the wall of lies. We'll be right back. How our good works help us to get to heaven? We'll examine that topic. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888. 888- Five two six two one five one. Jesus nine one one two man car. Jess Romero, Paul Clay. I just found the quote here that I was talking about. Malcolm X said in nineteen sixty five, "The white liberal is the worst enemy to America and the worst enemy to the black man." <laughs> okay, let's move. Let's let's get under some theology here. How our good works help us to get to heaven? This is a huge argument between Catholics and Protestants in the theological dialogues. Most Protestants believe, not all, most believe that we're saved by faith alone. But we Catholics believe that we're saved by faith and good works. Now, since both sides agree that faith is part of the equation, these discussions tend to center on the value of good works. In particular, they usually focus on whether the New Testament says our our works help us get to heaven. However, in doing so, we sometimes leave out an important piece of the puzzle. How our good works can play a role in our salvation. So we're going to look at the New Testament and the Catechism. They're very clear that salvation is not a simple weighing of our good actions against our bad actions. So at first blush, it's not entirely clear how the Catholic view can be correct. For example, take a look at some of these passages. Romans 3, 22-24. Quote, For there is no distinction... Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Close quote. Look at the Catechism, paragraph 1996, on the, on, the, on the term justification. It says, Our justification comes from the grace of God, grace's favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to His call to become children of God. Adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature, and of eternal life. Paragraph 1996. So when you look at the Bible verse in the Catechism, it is clear 
that salvation is not just a simple wane of our good acts against our bad acts. Rather, it's the result of God's grace. God's grace precedes everything, even your faith and whatever good works you do. Amen. It's a gift that God freely bestows on us, even though we're sinners who do not deserve it. So we can't earn it or save ourselves. That's Pelagianism. But if that's the case, how can good works play any role in it? If salvation is all grace, how can there be any room left for our works? Well, that may seem like an unsolvable dilemma, but there is a way out. Paul, you want to share? Well, yeah. Uh, yes, I can tell you that, um, you know, there's a there's a misunderstanding here with a lot of people. Number one, uh, and I think, you know, you touched on it when you talked about uh, grace. We are saved by grace, and it's called and it's the grace of baptism. Every Catholic understands that, you know, and this is why we baptize babies, right? Every, you know, that once, you know, uh, we are baptized, once we receive the sacrament of baptism, uh, we are literally adopted back into the family. We can, you know, we have a right to call God Father. It is purely by grace, yes. you know, that, that we receive that. Now, once once we are uh, uh, restored back to the family, God just doesn't simply declare us righteous. He doesn't, he doesn't like, like Luther, uh, his comment was, we are like a, a dunghill covered with snow, and the snow being the grace of God, and underneath we're still you know, dung. Uh, that, that, that's what Luther's idea and his distorted view of salvation was. But no, we understand as Catholics what God uh, declares, he accomplishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when God said, let there be light, just there was light. And when God, uh, dec- uh, you know, restores back our sonship, he doesn't just declare us righteous. He then uh, sets out on the process to make us righteous. He makes us righteous, and as we cooperate with the grace of God, you know that's that's our part. We're called to cooperate with the grace of God. We can resist the Holy Spirit of God. The the, the one thing about God is He never takes away our free will, and so even though you know He's done the work, He began the work. And that, like sacred scripture says, the good work that he began, he will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. But the works that are happening in us are not our own works. They're works prepared beforehand by God that we should walk in them. But it requires still a cooperation with us. And uh, that's again where and Luther, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly where Luther, uh, he went off the rails as a Roman Catholic priest. Yes. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, why it's possible to do works that are pleasing to God. It's pretty simple because God is in us and he's working in mm. us and he lives in us. When, when you understand the whole, the whole theology of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, then doing good works, you're going to see, well, this is easy because Christ is lives in me yes. and it's Christ the doing the work Lord. through me. So yes. once you understand that, and again, Luther just didn't understand that he thought that that was, works righteousness which in some way shape or form you know this is going back to legalism look at ephesians 2 12 and 13 it says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only is in my presence but much more in my absence 
Work out your own salvation. Think about a gym. Work out with fear and trembling. Well, how can, well, how can you do this? Easy. Next verse. For God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you read this text carefully, Paul says something pretty remarkable. He tells his readers to work out your own salvation. So it's clear that our good works play a role in the process. But salvation isn't just something that happens to us. Instead, we have to contribute to it and work it out. However, in the very, in the, yeah, in the very next clause, St. Paul qualifies his teaching in a way that resolves the tension be, between grace and works. Because he tells his readers that they can work out their salvation. Why? Because God is at work in you. That's yeah. the key that, to unlock yeah. the understanding to works. It's yeah. God doing this in you. So right. when baptized Christians in a state of grace perform good works, they're not just our good works, they're God's works. As St. Right. Paul says in another, another letter in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Yeah. Close quote. So when yeah, Jesus we... lives in us, he also acts in us, moving us to do the good works that get us to heaven. Paul? Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of another verse. Uh, we are his workmanship, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, we were created unto good works, just works, which were prepared beforehand by God that we should walk in them. You see, God is the one who, uh, you know, we're, yes, the human being left to himself is incapable of doing anything. Thing meritorious towards salvation. Yep. No Catholic is going to disagree with that. But once God takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, once God puts his spirit into us and causes us to, he then begins to work in us and causes obedience. He brings about obedience in us because, number one, we are, our very nature is changed, and, and, and it's changed because uh, we we don't be, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness, and our nature then begins to desire and crave the things of God, and that's who we are, and we'll continue to strive to be holy, and God will continue to strive with us and work with us uh, until ultimate perfection one day. You know, Paul, just a, another way to understand this, just you know, in, for for the for the blue collar guy. For the lunch pail guy, for the you know, for the nine to five Joe six six pack Catholic, here's a simple way to understand God's grace. God's grace is like a candle. Okay, just think about a candle. God's grace is like a candle. The mm-hmm. faith and works are like the light and the heat that comes from the candle. Now notice, all three cannot be separated, just like the Holy Trinity, although grace and faith and works are distinct, like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct, but they're inseparable. So God's right. grace is like a candle. The faith and works are the like and heat. They're inseparable from God's grace, but God's grace precedes everything. And by yeah. the way, it's not that difficult. It's not that difficult uh, to walk in the obedience of faith, as St. Paul says in Romans 1, 5 and Romans sixteen twenty six. When you're conforming yourself to Christ, when you're conforming yourself to Christ and you realize that you share in his divine nature, as St. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 4, and you know that God's nature is love, 1 John 4, 8. So when you conform to the the divine nature of Christ, which is love, 
it's not it's not difficult to walk in the obedience of faith. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's not impossible. I'm not going to say it's not difficult yeah. <laughs> because you know, uh, you know, this side of heaven, just as you know. The flesh is alive and well, and it constantly, I mean, yeah. we have enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're, we're down here in church militant, and it's often hand-to-hand combat. And like the General uh, MacArthur said, war is hell, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and fact, sacred scripture tells us that the road that leads to life is narrow, and few there be that find it. You see, the reason why it's narrow uh, you know, and, and, and few find it, it's not because everybody's heard the, you know, the message, the gospel has been proclaimed throughout yeah. the world. Yes. So why are there few that find it? Because there are few that are willing to do what is required. And the requirement is basically nothing short of giving yourself, you know, That's we, right. you know, that you mean Christ gave himself for us on the cross and he's inviting us He's made us partakers of the divine nature, and he, and, you know, and as partakers of the divine nature, now the suffering, and every Catholic knows this. We say, offer it up to God, right? The sufferings that we go through on planet Earth become meritorious. Yes. Why? In and of ourselves, no. No, because we're united we're to Christ. United to Christ, That's and right. they are the works of Christ in us. Yeah. You know, Paul Luther had a real strange view. Uh, maybe it was just he was being hyperbolic. Who knows? But his view on works, here's some of Luther's uh, from Table Talk. He says this, page 137. Luther says that the gospel, Luther says, he who says that the gospel requires works for salvation, I say flat and plain is a liar. I got some other quotes from Luther, but uh, we'll move on. We'll leave Luther alone. He's already been, he's already dead and been judged. Hey, we want to talk about what St. Thomas Aquinas says about bad prelates. Hmm, interesting. We'll be back. St. Thomas Aquinas on bad prelates. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888 526 2151. Jesus 911, two man car. Uh, St. John Eudes, he says that bad priests are a sign of God's anger. St. John mm-hmm. Eudes, uh, he actually wrote this in a book. It's called The Priest, His Dignity and Obligations. He says a bad priest is a sign of God's anger. Is a sign of God's anger. St. Gregory the Great says that. That priests and pastors will stand condemned before God as murders of any souls lost through through their neglect or silence. Saint Thomas Aquinas also talks about bad prelates. So, what attitude should a Catholic take towards cruel and arbitrary prelates? For example, those who endlessly stir up division and then shamelessly blame the division on those who note and bemoan the fact. Saint Thomas Aquinas wrote this in a chapter of a book called. Quad Libet, chapter 1, and St. Thomas says the following, quote, We can distinguish two things about a prelate, the person himself and his office, which makes him a sort of public person. If a prelate is evil, he should not be honored for the person he is, for honor is respect shown to people as a witness for their virtue. 
Hence, if we honored such a prelate for the person he is, we would bear fair we would bear false witness about him, which is forbidden in Exodus chapter twenty. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Mm-hmm. But as a public person, a prelate bears an image and occupies a position in the church that does not belong to him, but rather to someone else, vis-a-vis Christ. And as such, his worth is not determined by the person he is, but by the position he occupies. He is like one of these, one of those little stones used as a placeholder for a hundred marks on a scale, quite worthless in itself. As Proverbs 26 says, he who gives honor to a fool is like the one who puts a stone on Mercury's heap. Close quote. So too, an evil prelate should not be honored because of what he is, but because of the one whose position he holds. This case is similar to the veneration of images, which is directed to the things depicted therein, as St. John Damascene says. Hence, Zechariah compares an evil prelate to an idol. Woe to the pastor, an idol who deserts the flock. Mm. St. Thomas says on page 70 of, that, of, the, of his book, an evil prelate is, worthy, is unworthy to be a prelate and receive the honors due to prelates. But the one whose image the, the evil prelate, prelate bears is worthy to have his vicar honored, just as the Blessed Virgin is worthy to have a painted image of her venerated, venerated although the image itself is not worthy of such respect. Paul, you want to pick it up on the article? Yes. There are two key points here. The first is that when a man is a bad prelate, he should not pretend otherwise. We, we should not. Because... We should not. Oh, oh, excuse me. Yeah. We should not. We should not pretend otherwise merely because of his office. Mm. That Aquinas says would be a violation of the Eighth Commandment a lie. He also compares it to idolatry. An example of Christ or of a saint has no value in itself, but only as a pointer to something beyond it. When we focus on the image itself, we turn it into an idol. Similarly, a bad prelate merits honor only because of the office he holds. When we pretend his personal faults are not real, strain to attribute good motives to manifestly unjust acts or hidden wisdom to manifestly foolish utterances, we are like someone who fixates on an image and pretends that the many flaws and limitations it contains as as a mere piece of matter must somehow really be divine. Oh. Wow, that, that sentence was powerful, Paul, that a prelate could, man, could uh, we can't attribute good motives to manifestly unjust acts or hidden wisdom to manifestly foolish utterances. You know, Jess, uh, oh. tru- truly what the great Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. And when we read in church history and we see with this with this great uh, saint, this doctor uh, has to tell us it's just amazing, and, mm. and 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 this is this is obviously this is wisdom that you know tra- it transcends time, 
it, you know, this isn't just for his time. It's for our time. It's for yes. all times because truth, all truth is God's truth, right? Yes. Yes. St. Thomas Aquinas, by the way, it was said that he would, he would write his theology. He would study theology on his knees before the blessed sacrament. He wrote and wow. read on his knees every time he would uh, put pen to paper and study theology. He always did in the, in the presence it, of Jesus Christ. Well, it shows. Yeah. He, has the, he has the mind of Christ. He has the yeah. wisdom of Christ here. Yeah. Uh, the second key point is that such a prelate, nevertheless, must be given the honor that attaches to his office as a vicar of Christ. It is an insult to Christ to refuse his representative such honor as if it is not Christ himself who is permitting such a man to be his vicar, uh, or as if Christ does not know what he is what he is doing in permitting it. And you're right. You know, I've, said, said, I've heard you say that before to me when we've talked. You, you said exactly that same thing, Paul, about bishops yeah. and popes. You said exactly the same thing. Yeah, and 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 think about the truth behind that. Um, uh, and you, well, you said it at the beginning. You know, uh, uh, the quote from the uh, that God Saint John Eudes. Yeah, that, God I mean, permits that, that bad quote, priests as a sign that He's angry with His people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because well, we know the sacred scripture says God causes all things to work together for good for those that love God, for those that are called according to His purpose. And sometimes, you know what? Maybe. He allows a bad prelate to exist in order to stir us up, in order to, mm. you know, uh, cause a little moral outrage on our behalf in the sense of, okay, we're not, you know, we don't have license. We have to respect, you know, the office because of, of, of you know, it's no different than David and Saul when he said, you know, yes. you know, he couldn't touch God's anointed, you know, so, so these are holy things uh, beyond us, beyond our job description, yes. so to speak, uh, uh, to do certain things. But at the same time, you know, we have to recognize, you know, uh, whether truth or the truth being proclaimed or the thing being said uh, aligns itself with 2,000 years That's of right. Catholic tradition yeah. and Catholic teaching. And if it doesn't, then we de facto must go with tradition. Yes. That's what St. Paul says. Hold fast to the traditions, whether given to you by word or by letter. Second Thessalonians 2.15. The article says, as, I, as I've discussed in detail elsewhere, according to Aquinas and according to Catholic teaching more generally, such a prelate can and ought to be criticized publicly by his subjects when he does something that endangers the faith. Wow. But given the nature of his office, it, even this must be done, not with imprudence and harshness, but with gentleness and respect. And if the yeah. prelate in question is the Pope, respectful criticism is the most one can do because he has no superior on earth. Christ alone can and will resolve the problem in his own time and in the way he judges best. When these points, what these points together entail is what? Suffering. And suffering, as the lives of the saints attest, and as Scripture teaches us from the very beginning to the end, is the lot of the righteous man. Suffering penitentially. Suffering in solidarity with others. Suffering in unity with Christ's own agony. This suffering can result from our own sins, or from the effects of original sin on, on the world around us, or from persecution. And sometimes it can even come from the church itself. Christ promises only that she will not be destroyed or 
in her decisive pronouncements blind the faithful to error or bind the faithful to error. Short of that, she can and sometimes is afflicted with evil of every kind, even at the very top. This is permitted in part precisely to illustrate the truth of Christ's promise. Even bad popes cannot destroy the church. Pick it up from there, Paul. Wow. Uh, yes. Uh, okay, picking it up. Okay, but church history is not not a Marvel movie where everything works out in two hours, or at least by the next movie in the series. As the cadaver synod, the great Western schism, and other episodes illustrate, it can sometimes take decades to resolve the problems resulting from Papal folly, corruption, and mismanagement. We modern Catholics are soft and impatient, and we need to recover the forbearance forbearance of our forebearers. You know, just a quick comment there, Jess. We live in a microwave society. We want it now. We don't want to wait for anything. Um, This is just, uh, you know, where society has moved to. But if you remember looking at the past, Things, uh, knowledge and things moved at a much slower pace. Uh, and, uh, you know, now we're, you know, you get on a plane and you can be in Europe and, right. you know, a couple hours. in the same, yeah, in the, in the same day. Yeah. But things didn't move at the, at the pace. And we have to kind of remember yeah. that these things aren't new just to us. These things have, have you know, these, the church has dealt with all kinds of things in the past and the church has survived and we will too yeah. continuing yeah. on current events make timely the re- the recollection of some words from pope benedict the 16th while he was still cardinal ratzinger on the event of the death of michael davies the well-known traditionalist catholic writer and stalwart defender of the tridentine mass the cardinal wrote I have been profoundly touched by the news of the death of Michael Davies. I had the good fortune to meet him several times, and I found him as a man of deep faith and ready to embrace suffering. Ever since the council, he put all his energy into the service of the faith and left us important publications, especially about the sacred liturgy. Michael Davies is, is the late counterpart to uh, Marcel Lefebvre. What Marcel Lefebvre was to the clergy, Michael Davies was to the, to the uh, lay Catholics, uh, a great defender of tradition. Michael Davies, may he rest in peace. Well, that's a wrap. Uh, Jesus 911, two-man car. We're, we, we are E-O-W, end of watch. Up next, you'll hear more from uh, Gary Machudahan's on apologetics. As for us... Thank you, family, for listening, tuning into the show. Remember, we're called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. And as St. Peter says, set yourselves apart from this corrupt generation. Be saints. You weren't made to fit in. You were born to stand out. God bless you. Keep the faith. See you next time.